It really is a trust issue, and that's uh, that's what we're talking about this morning. And it's about where are you putting your trust right now? Uh, are you putting it into finances? Are you, are you putting it into an economy uh, that you really can't have faith in right now? And every day it's different, and one day the stock market's high, and the next day uh, the stock market's low. Are you putting your trust in Jesus Christ? And uh, that's why we're talking about money right now. And, and maybe you're here this morning, and, and you've uh, just checking out Genesis. Maybe you haven't been at church in a while. You walk in, and you see that we're talking about money, and you're that's why I left the last place. I'm tired of churches talking about money all the time. Well, we just want you to find in that uh, our discussions, our talking about money has, has nothing to do with, well, what can we gain or what can the church gain from this? We just can't think of a greater time to talk about money than right now. I can't think of a better time for us to be relevant uh, with a subject, especially a subject money uh, with what's going on in our economy right now. And so uh, I just want you to find trust and confidence in that over the next couple of weeks, as we did last week, we're going to look at the topic of money and what the Bible has to say about money. Uh, and that's where we're going to look. We're going to look to the Bible and what God's word uh, has to say about this subject, because I believe that there's relevant information in the Bible uh, that can be applied to our life, even right now during this time and during this season, uh, to help us put our trust in God and to make sure that we can weather the storms. My name is Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. We're glad uh, that you're here with us today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke and go to Luke chapter 12. Uh, we're going to get there in just a couple of minutes, Luke chapter 12. Uh, but I, w- I was reading uh, in a newspaper, a, a recent edition, just this past week, and a newspaper columnist uh, wrote the following words. He said, there are dog people and there are cat people. How many dog people do we have in the crowd today? Okay, how many cat people? Just want to figure out where we are. Wow, cat people, not doing too well. All right, there are dog people and there are cat people. There are swimming pool people and there are beach people. How many swimming pool people do we have? How many beach people do we have? All right. Uh, there are morning people and evening people. How many morning people do we have? All right. How many evening people do we have? Oh, let's see. This is just telling us a lot about this Genesis crowd. There are coffee people and there are tea people. There are ice capades people and there are hockey fans. There are tennis people and there are golf people. And I just think it's interesting to note that the writer of this article went on to say that golf people tend to have big stomachs and walk like cowboys and tennis people have had liposuction and wear lots of jewelry. All right. Just just a little distinction there. This is I didn't write this. This is what the writer wrote. Okay. he continues by saying there are breakfast people and those who don't have a clue what breakfast is all about. There are people with paper and pencil by the phone, and there are people with children. He said there are Michael Jackson fans, and then there's the rest of us. Uh, And I just want to make a distinction that we're not talking about Michael Jackson, who plays the pink bass behind us on Sunday mornings. Different Michael Jackson. We all love Michael Jackson. Uh, But he goes on with a bunch of distinctions. And I was thinking that we could kind of develop a similar, similar list uh, with some observations about how we take care of money and our differences in money. There are cash people and there are credit card people. Uh, there are Nordstrom shoppers and there are thrift store people. There are people who balance their checkbook every month and there are people who shut their checkbook down every two years and just start over, you know. Uh, you know who you are. There are people with stockbrokers and people who go broke just fine without one. Uh, there are blue sky people who, you know, financial optimists. And then there are the sky is falling people, just always pessimistic about things. But the list 
could go on and on. I mean, we could continue on the list, but the point is well taken. Isn't it that in with our various upbringings uh, regarding money or our different approaches uh, to financial management and to having a financial plan, every single one of us comes at this subject of money from different directions. Uh, we, we either have a, a strong philosophy or a strong plan or no philosophy or no plan at all. And so how would you describe yourself when it comes to money? You know, are you a tightwad or are you somebody that uh, spends freely? Actually, you know what? Turn to the person right next to you and and just real quickly, you've got 10 seconds. uh, Describe with one word how you are when it comes to money. Do that right now. All right. So we all come at this from different directions. We're all different people. We're all unique creations of God, aren't we? Um, But when it comes to saving, I think there are some of us that would say, you know what? I save like there is no tomorrow. You know, there's nothing to worry about at all. I'm going to live my life, you know, to to the greatest every single day. And the truth is, because as a whole, we're not really doing very well when it comes to this subject of saving. Uh, Statistics show that according to the national savings rate, the discipline of saving has been declining for about the last 10 years. The national saving rate is about the same as was recorded during the Great Depression. In June of 2006, it was 0.02%, meaning that the average American was spending 99.98% of their income, of their tax income. Uh, Newsweek says that 70% of all Americans today live paycheck to paycheck. And so we want to look to the Bible and what the Bible has to say about a very practical issue. Last week we talked about giving. This week we're going to talk about what does the Bible have to say about savings. Proverbs 21 says that a wise man saves for the future. If we are wise, we'll save for the future. But saving for the future can be a challenge. You know, especially as you start adding up bills or a crisis is thrown in your life or a job changes or there's no job at all. And I think that if we got real honest with ourselves, every single one of us would like to save. You know, no matter how you spend or how freely you spend, when it comes down to it, we'd we'd all love to save. Well, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives us some insight on the subject of saving. And it's here that he addresses two different kinds of people. First of all, he addresses those who don't save and need to do a better job of it. But secondly, Jesus addresses those who have saved a lot and the responsibility that comes with attaining such great wealth. And so in Luke chapter 12, it's here that we meet up with Jesus and Jesus is teaching to a crowd of a great size. Uh, He's teaching about subjects about being faithful to God and don't deny me here on earth or I will deny you before my father in heaven if you deny me here on earth. In verse four, he talks about don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of what other people think about you or how other people are living in that you feel like you need to compare yourselves with them. Live for yourself. Live for God. They have no power over you. In verse 5, you worry about what God thinks because he is the one who has the power to throw you in hell, which are very strong words. So Jesus is talking about some very deep things, things that have eternal value. But it's here in the very midst of this conversation, in this talk that Jesus is giving to this great crowd, that there's this abrupt, um, you know, abrupt... I can't even think of the word right now, but this guy just interrupts. That's the word I'm looking for, that this guy interrupts with his hand up before everyone else. It's a rough transition. 
and it begins with a request of Jesus. Uh, look, if you would, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It says that someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, what's happening here? Well, it's obvious that there is some sort of family disagreement that is taking place between two brothers and the subject of money. Now, that never happens in our families, does it? You know, we never have disagreements in our families regarding money. Chances are you've never had a disagreement with your spouse regarding how much to spend or, or no spending at all. You know, we never argue about this, do we? Well, we, yes, we do. And that's what's going on here. There's this disagreement in this family over the subject of money. There's a guy that wants to make sure that he gets a portion of the inheritance, but he wants an equal portion. Because Levitical law stated that the older brother would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother would receive one-third of the inheritance. And so this younger guy is like, hey, Jesus, can you tell my brother to kind of split the inheritance with me 50-50? You know, let's make it fair. And so let's note right here that it appears that this man is coming to Jesus for financial guidance. He's coming to Jesus for financial guidance. And I'm not sure that we're always up for that sort of advice from Jesus when it comes to money. You know, we don't like Jesus getting too close to our money. You know, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you went seeking advice, but you went to someone who you knew would agree with you? Or say what it is you wanted them to say. I'm guilty of that. I've done that before. And while at times it would be good for us or healthy for us to, to go and speak to somebody with great wisdom who might have a different idea that we could learn from them, that's not such an easy thing to do. And it can be the same way in going to Jesus or into going to the Word of God on the subject of money. You know, many of you grew up in a home where your spiritual life and, and your financial life were, were kind of kept uh, in separate distinctions. You, you've got your financial life over here on one side and you've got your spiritual life over here in another area. And your financial life is in this airtight compartment that your spiritual life is not able to penetrate. And that's how you grew up thinking about money. That's how you grew up thinking about faith. You know, I can have my faith and I can have my spiritual life. And as far as my money is concerned, that's my problem. You know, that's not God's problem. In fact, here's what I'll do. I'll just choose to not even think about it or address it because if I choose not to think about it or address it, maybe God will forget about it or he'll just overlook that part of my life and everything will be just fine. But if you look to the Bible, it's very clear that money is a scriptural issue. Jesus spoke on the subject of money more than he spoke on anything else. When the Knights of Templar uh, were baptized in the church, uh, they would hold their swords up in the air as they would come out of water. Uh, historical records indicate that as they were baptized and they came up out of the water, they would hold their swords in the air. And what they were saying in that was, God, we're all about everything that you're doing in us right now. And you can have all of me, but you can't have my sword. You know, this sword belongs to me. What I do on the battlefield is up to me. That 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 is of my concern only. It's not of your concern. And I think a lot of Christians you know, like us, that when we are baptized today, we're always holding something up out of the water. 
You know, that when we're baptized today, it's as if we, we hold our sex life up out of the water and say, God, you know, I want you to have every part of me, but it is up to me to make my own decisions regarding what I want to do with my sex life. Or in business, you know, and with ethics and how I choose to run my business or how I choose, choose to, to treat others. Or I think what many of us Christians do, it's, it's our wallets. You know, as we're baptized and we're coming up out of the water, we're holding our wallets up in the air saying, God, you can have everything. I'm all about this and what's taking place in my right now, life right now, but, but you can't have my wallet. You know, I'm not about to turn my finances over to you. There's a rabbi who wrote a book entitled uh, called Jewish Spirituality. In this book, he talks about how in the first century, if you would have walked up to Jesus and to his disciples and said to them something like this, hey, I have a question for you. How is your spiritual life? They wouldn't have had a clue of what you're talking about. In fact, in the Hebrew, there is no word for spiritual because for them, life was spiritual. Everything they did, every aspect of their life was spiritual. There was no distinction. There were no compartments. Everything fell under this umbrella of spirituality. It was all assumed. And so here in Luke chapter 12, As Jesus is speaking to this crowd, this man comes to Jesus as rabbi and asks him for guidance in the area of finances. But notice the second thing here. He's not really seeking counsel from Jesus. He's really just looking for Jesus to tell him what he wants to hear. So here's a question I have for you this morning. What does the teaching of the Bible mean to you? I mean, when you think about what's taught from the Bible or what you read, have read, do you, do you take it as truth? Do you, do you take each portion of it as, you know, that's something that I really need to work through in my life? Or look at it this way. If you understood what Jesus said about money and found that it was different than the way you handle it, would you be willing to make the sacrifices and the choices that were necessary to make a great change. If you learned what the Bible had to say about money, would you be willing to make the changes necessary to be obedient to God and what he's asked for us in our life? But I'm not sure we're always up for the task. You know, it's a growth process for me and, and in the way that I view my money or just in various aspects of life, how I treat my family, my kids, my wife, how I treat others. And it's easy to compartmentalize, you know, the financial side of life and and the spiritual side of life. It's almost like we practice selective listening. You know, I practice selective listening all the time with my kids or, you know, uh, selective response to their cries and screams. You know, we've learned the different pitches and octaves. You know when it's serious. And I think we do the same thing, too, with the teaching in the Bible once in a while. We, we choose what it is we want to hear and what we don't want to hear. And so we we pretend to hear it. But as this man comes to Jesus... It's worth noting that he's not asking a question. He wants Jesus to tell him what he wants to hear. And look at Jesus' response to this man in verse 14. It says, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Watch out. And then Jesus turns to the rest of the crowd rather than just address this man. And here's what he said. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I mean, how many of you have learned that lesson? You know, and so, For some, it's been a difficult lesson to learn. For others, it's been an easier lesson to learn. Some of us haven't learned that lesson at all yet. But notice what happens next. In verse 16, 
Jesus begins to teach in a parable. He begins to tell a story, a story that's not true but could be true, and he uses this story to teach a greater lesson. And this isn't unusual. In fact, in 16 of Jesus' 38 parables, in some way he talked about the subject of money. Because Jesus understood that like this man here in Luke chapter 12, that we're often like this man. We think about life in such ways and and more money can easily become our motivation. And so Jesus warns about this. Verse 16, it says, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man, note, note that he was a rich man, he had more than what he needed, produced a good crop and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Now stop right here. And I don't want you to cheat ahead and to finish the story. Let's just imagine for a second that you do not know how this, this story ends. Here's a man that Jesus is speaking of and he's rich. He had everything he needed. And now he has more than he knows what to do with. And so he decides to save it. The Bible says that he's going to tear down his smaller barns and build bigger barns to save this money. And there's nothing wrong with this. There is scriptural evidence to support that we should save, that we should be wise in our savings. It says in the Proverbs, a wise man saves for the future. But while everyone realizes the importance of savings... Uh, The numbers do not indicate that we do a good job of this as Americans. Social Security recently reported that 85 to 100 Americans don't have an extra $250 at the end of each month. You know, and we could sit here today and we could think of a whole list of things that are worth saving for. You can save for a college education. Uh, You could save for a time of emergency or a time of crisis that you can't predict. Uh, We can save for improvements for our home in the future. You can set aside, you know, a certain uh, amount of your income each month towards a 401k in order to prepare for the future. Uh, You can save money to cover future medical costs or, or funeral expenses. We all know that it is important to save, but it's another thing to practice this. Well, the Bible gives very practical Uh, information, advice on how we can manage our money. And so we're going to look at a few basic principles this morning. And the first principle might surprise you, especially in the area of savings. And that is that if you're going to try and free up some money to save, the first step that I believe that we have been commanded as followers of Jesus Christ to do is to give the first 10% back to God. You know, we talked about that last week, the importance of the first fruits and what God has to say about money, that the first 10% of everything that we make should go to God. It teaches, the Bible teaches that not only that 10% belongs to God, that everything we have belongs to God. It all belongs to him. And as we honor God in our giving, the Bible promises that God will give us even more in return, that the best thing you can do in savings is to actually begin by giving. Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. And so what does this teach us? That when we give to God, God takes notice. That he takes notice of the cheerful giver who sets aside the first of their income and gives back to God, that God notices that. He gets that. That's what he wants in us. And it's a mystery that we cannot explain that he promises to bless us in return. But he takes care of those who honor him with their wealth. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 24 says, One one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And so the Bible says, give your first 10% to God. 
Now, I know that seems like a lot. And I know that that's easier said than done, especially if you've never done that before, especially if you've never practiced that. It's a test. But do you know what's really interesting, especially about the number 10, that in the Bible, the number 10 uh, is closely associated with testing all throughout the Scripture. Look at it like this. Pharaoh, he was tested by the 10 plagues in Egypt, 10 tests. Uh, The 10 commandments were given. 10 different ways uh, our obedience is tested as we live life. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, when Jacob was tested by God, when Daniel was tested in Daniel chapter 1, all of that, all of them, 10 times, 10 times of testing. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 speaks of 10 days of testing. Throughout the Bible, we see that the number 10 is closely associated with the test. And I think it's interesting that God would ask us to give 10%. It's a test. Who are we putting our trust in? Who are we putting our faith in? I I talked with two people after the service this past week about their journey in giving. And uh, one gentleman came up to me and talked about how, you know, when he first was looking at the subject of money and uh, the church that he was attending was preaching about uh, taking, uh, just, just taking the challenge of, you know what, just try it. You know, for three months, put God to the test, as Malachi chapter uh, 3, verses 8 and 10 says. You know, put God to the test and test Him for three months and give 10% of everything you make and trust that He will bless you. And He said, you know, here's what the interesting thing was. After those three months, I wasn't any re- richer. In fact, I was m- even more concerned about our financial situation. But here's what started happening. God began revealing to me that I had an, a heart issue, that I had a trust issue, that I was placing more faith in my money than I was actually placing in God. And over a period of time, he broke my heart and he's begun rebuilding my heart and I'm able to approach this subject much differently today. I talked with another gentleman after the service last week up here and and he talked about that before marriage, he was already in the practice of giving 10% of his income. And his wife, who he married, had never done it before. And so they were at two different ends of the spectrum and so they compromised. They just said, hey, here's what we'll do. 10% seems like a great number uh, for, for either of us to be at. And so let's just even, let's just say, hey, let's just start at 5% or even 6% and allow God to work in our hearts, allow him to work in our marriage so that we can grow in this together. And he said, here's the great thing. God did just that. And while we started out at 5% as a couple, we've grown to 10% and even over that today. And we have no debt in our life and God has blessed us and he's blessed our marriage because of it. And I think the encouragement for you is this. If you're not given anything right now, but God is working in your heart and you know you need to take steps, but you're just not sure where the money is going to come from, then you, you know what? You go to God and you figure out where you need to start. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that, well, you know what? 5% is fine. Go ahead and start at 5% if you want to. But if you feel like that's just where you need to begin and you're going to trust God to provide for you and grow in you, go ahead and take those steps. Because again, I don't think God is so much concerned concerned about the amount of money that we give to him as he's just concerned about seeing people make choices to trust him in their life and in their giving god tests us you know and he tests us to see if we'll trust him he is waiting to see what you are going to do with the test with this 10 percent. it's a test of trust and when you say god this belongs to you i think god sees that and he gives us more There's another thing that I think we need to consider as we think about savings, and and that is that we need to appreciate what it is that we have. You know, the second thing that we learn from Scripture is that we should appreciate what we have. So much of the Bible, what the Bible has to say about money, has to do with the issue of attitude. You know, what is our attitude in this? You know, when, when we are content with what we have been given, 
we are less likely to spend our money on other things. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 10 through 11 says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Here's what it's basically saying. The more money that you have, the more you spend. We do it. You know, and that's our tendency that we think even that with a little more wealth, then we'll be able to give or, or then we will have more. But have you ever found yourself in this kind of situation? You know, maybe you got called into your supervisor's office or your boss's office and you got great news. The envelope had nothing but good news in it. It said that at the beginning of the next pay period that you were going to get a 10% increase. You know, and you celebrate and you go home and, you know, you or your wife or your family, uh, you guys go out to dinner together and you celebrate what has taken place. But then six months later, you realize, where did that 10% go? that it has just somehow fallen into our budget and in our habits of spending. And while we thought we were going to get this great increase, it so easily dissolves. Well, I think as we see it, the problem isn't always that we are not saving enough. You know, we like to say that it's, well, we don't make enough. You know, if I had more money, then I could save. But that's not what the Bible says. It says that we spend right up to what we make. As many of you know, uh, my family and I, we've been living in an apartment uh, which has been kind of fun, been kind of interesting. We sold our house in Louisville, which we're very grateful for. Uh, we've purchased a house here in Noblesville, and we actually are going to close later this week, and we'll start moving in over, over the month of November. So we're really excited about that. But with three kids, three young kids, we've been living in this three-bedroom apartment, which we're very thankful for. But there's something that I'm beginning to notice and my wife began noticing a long time ago, and that is the walls continue to keep coming in. Like I think the square footage in our apartment continues to decrease and our volume level continues to increase too. And while we started out in this apartment building being the only family so we could be as loud as we wanted, we have people all around us now. And I know that we're driving people crazy because we're on the second floor. And I won't be surprised at all, you know, as our kids scream, there are probably people on the other side of the wall that father is beating that child right now and the police are going to show up to our door and and uh, but i have to tell you that i've actually enjoyed living there because i come home at night and there's no yard to mow nothing needs to be fixed and and what i've noticed too is that you know like half of our belongings are currently in a storage unit right now and as we begin to feel cramped i even realize you know even with half of our things in a storage unit we still have so much you know, and we're not pack rats at all. I, I think we, we try at least to live simply, but we have so much. I mean, we are, we are so blessed with everything that we have. And, and, and so therefore, I, I think, you know, as I need to do a better job of appreciating what I have, we, we all need to do the same because we have more than we need. We really do, and we just get caught up into this worldly thinking that we need more. Research shows that stuff and money really don't bring any greater levels of happiness. We think more would satisfy us. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20 says, Just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. And so we need to do a better job of not buying into this bigger barn illusion. You know, that if we had more things, we, we'd be happier. If I could just get a little bit more, you know, then I could start saving. Happiness and contentment cannot be purchased. I think another thing that we need to do as we think about savings is we need to attack debt. That we need to do a better job of attacking debt. A good savings plan always involves attacking debt. 
because debt is the enemy of savings. Consider this example. The average car payment in America today is $378 a month. Okay, $378 a month. I remember the first car that my wife and I leased just after we were married. We were paying $365 a month to lease this vehicle for three years. If you're 25 right now, you're out of college, you just got your first job, and you're looking to replace that old beater, consider this option. What value would it be to you that rather than put the $378 a month into a new vehicle to maybe buy a vehicle that's reliable, that you could afford and even possibly pay for with cash. And so instead, you take that $378 that you would spend every month on that vehicle and you put it into a retirement account or a savings account instead, just some information here on compounding interest. By the time you retire, if you didn't touch it, you would have over $4 million in savings. Debt is the enemy of savings. ABC News recently reported that the average young couple spends $1,600 more a year than they make. And Proverbs 21 in the Good News Bible says, stupid people spend it as fast as they get it. And going into debt makes it almost impossible to save. Another thing that we can consider as we think about savings is to anticipate tough times. This past Christmas... Uh, my mother and father, I don't call mother and father, my mom and dad, uh, sorry about that. I'm sorry, it was a hallmark moment here on stage. But my mom and dad bought uh, my, my boys an ant farm. You know, I never had an ant farm growing up, and it was really pretty cool to watch. And I wish you could have been there the night we tried to put these ants into this ant farm, you know, because the warning said that they, they, they would bite, you know. And so I looked like you know, just this, this little girl, frightened girl, or a little frightened boy, you know, as I'm trying to put these ants into this ant farm. And then you have to feed them. You know, it says to take cereal or potato chips and crush them up and put them down in here. And, you know, there are 10, 12 ants and I've put this food in there and they're not eating. And so I think, well, maybe they don't like potato chips or maybe they don't like Doritos or something. And so, you know, put some Cheerios in there and, and, and you just see this food. And over time, it's amazing how these ants work and how they would begin to accumulate all of this food and, and actually place it in different portions or different parts uh, of the farm. Well, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. See, ants live off of what they need, and they put some aside uh, for more difficult days. 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. You know, it's no wonder that we get into so much trouble when the economy takes a bad turn. The Bible warns us here in Proverbs 6 to be prepared for the winter months, much like the ant. To anticipate the tough times and to assume that there are going to be some winter months in life. And so financial experts recommend having a savings account or an emergency savings of at least three months uh, to help you during such a season. Again, one more thing, accumulate little by little. Uh, as we think about savings, a recent poll said that one in four Americans would say that the best chance to build wealth for retirement is to win the lottery. Believe it or not, one in four Americans. Well, the Bible teaches the best ways to accumulate little by little, little at a time. Proverbs thirteen eleven: money that comes easily disappears quickly, but money that is gathered little by little will grow. And so an emergency fund is a good thing. You know, some experts will say that you should have an accumulation fund, a fund that you're setting money aside in that, you know, hey, five years from now, we're going to have to replace the roof. You know, the long term, long range investments are a good thing as you think about the future and as you think about retirement. 
But you have to ask, well, where do you start? Well, here's why I'm excited. And that is in just a few weeks on Tuesday night, November 11th, we're going to start an 11 or 13 week series course here on Tuesday night. It's called Financial Peace University. Uh, Dave Ramsey is one of the most popular talk show hosts in America right now. He's a Christian, but he's an expert in finances. And so he's prepared a teaching, a video teaching that helps people, helps families to get on track in their spending, where he lays out very practical advice. And Michael Parton and his wife and uh, some others are going to help facilitate uh, this uh, 13-week study. And we would love for you to consider being a part of it. You know, it's an opportunity to get on a plan, to learn more about how you're spending and how you can do a better job in the future. And we've got information back at the Info Hub about that. Uh, Michael will be back there afterwards if, if you'd like to talk to him more about financial peace. Proverbs 21, verse 5, plan carefully and you'll have plenty. But if you act too quickly, you'll never have enough. And so 10, 10, 80 is a plan. You know, that's the title of our series. And last week, uh, we gave out a little sticker uh, that said 10%, 10 to give, uh, that we invited you to take and maybe to put somewhere just as a reminder to help to get you into a habit. And so today, another 10% to giving what would ha- or to savings. What would happen if you decided with your income to set aside at least 10% of every paycheck and to put it into some sort of investment or into some sort of savings plan? It's a starting place. And so, you know, maybe you're here, maybe you're two weeks in and you're like, you know what? I get it. I'm motivated. Uh, I'm not sure how we're going to do this. I'm not even sure it makes sense or if I completely agree. But but God has made me this promise that if I am faithful to him in my giving and in the way that I spend, that he will bless me. And so so you're here and you're saying, you know, what? I'm going to try it for three months. I'm going to try it for November, December and January. And I'm going to give 10 percent to God. I'm going to give 10 percent to savings and I'm going to live off of 80 percent. And it's a great place to start. But some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, I'm not getting it. I'd like to get it. And I'm not even going to say that I disagree with it. But I have no idea how to start. I mean, our money is absolutely exhausted right now. You know, we are pinching every penny. I mean, we're barely making the mortgage payment. You know, my husband, wife is out of a job right now or we're transitioning. So where do we start? Well, I think we've got to get creative and think about what we're spending money on. You know, what, what if you're going out to lunch every single day? You know, five days a week and you're spending, you know, maybe you're showing up at Qdoba, you know, on Wednesdays and you're, you know, you're getting that burrito and it, you know, it's $7. And so you're spending on average $7 a day on lunch. What would happen if instead you decided that, hey, even one day a week, I'm going to get up or I'm going to the night before I'm going to pack the PB and J and I'm going to put the chips into a Ziploc and I'm going to take the carrot sticks. You know what? You will feel better by the afternoon is what I found. And I do eat out my fair portion, but you feel better uh, when you eat in such a way. But also this, if you put away that $7 a week, just $7 a week, one day for 20 years, you would have $17,294 at the end of 20 years. And so we can find these ways to create margin in our life to make some changes or look at it this way. Starbucks. All right. $2 and 75 cents every day at Starbucks once a day, which isn't getting you much, folks. I mean, you might be getting the venti black coffee and dressing it up with your own creamers. There's no macchiatos or mochas or anything going on for $2.75. But $2.75 a day, seven days a week. Well, what if you saved that money and put it away for 40 years? You'd be a millionaire. And, you know, that might mean getting up in the morning and plugging in the Sanka or the Folgers, you know, crisp or whatever and decorating it up with the, the creamer that you buy at the grocery store. But again, 
I, I think we spend more money than we realize at times on these little luxuries. And so make some changes. Eat in more often. You know, skip the movies. Cut coupons. Order water to drink, you know, when you eat out. And that doesn't mean that you can't ever treat yourself, but it all adds up. Here's just one example. You know, suppose you're 25 years old, you're married with a combined income of $60,000. And let's just assume that over the next 40 years, your income level never changes. You make $60,000 a year as a couple for the next 40 years. And you make a decision, hey, that we're going to do the 10-10-80 thing. We're going to give 10% of everything that we ever make to God and to his kingdom and to his church. We're going to take 10% and we're going to put it into some sort of investment savings plan. And we're just going to live off of 80%. Here's just one example. By the age 65, you would have given $240,000 to the cause of Christ in this world. And you would have saved around $2.7 million. And that's just if things never change. Proverbs 23 verse 5 says, In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. We need to have a plan. And again, God isn't interested in dollar amounts from you. I promise you that. He doesn't care if you give $10,000, $20,000, $300, $100,000. God wants your heart. And I believe that he just simply wants to see evidence in us that we are trusting him more and more with our living. So real quickly here as we conclude, let's go back to Luke chapter 12 for just a moment. We've got this rich guy. Uh, He wants more. He's got more. He decides that the best thing to do is to tear down barns and build even bigger barns. Okay? And again, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with being rich. I mean, Abraham, uh, Moses, Solomon, David, they would have all been considered rich or millionaires by our standards today. But watch what Jesus says in verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. This is the man speaking within the parable that Jesus is teaching. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. If you have saved and accumulated all of these things in your life, and are not rich towards God, Jesus calls you a fool right here in Scripture. And so I think there are just two warnings here that I want to end with, and then we're going to finish. Just two warnings for us to think about as we think about savings in the future. The first warning is that we always have to examine our motives. We have to think about our motives. You know, how much are we to save? I think that's a reasonable question. But I'm not sure that God intended for every Christian to be a millionaire And when God promises to open up the warehouses, the storehouses of heaven to bless us, that doesn't promise you that you're going to be a millionaire. But if you look at Scripture, God is more concerned with the attitude in the heart. And so greed, greed is a bad motive. Greed is a bad motive. Nine times in two verses, this man speaks about himself. My crops, my barns, my grains, my goods. We say things like my house, my career, my my, my car, my 401k. It's not ours. What was this man's motivation? Look at verse 19. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And I think when our motivation for life and savings becomes these selfish desires, it's not saving that we're doing, it's hoarding. And so our goal shouldn't be to die with millions. Fear is a bad motive. You know, this man put all of his security 
into his money, into his savings. He thought if I had enough, I wouldn't have to worry about life. And so the moment you put your security into savings, then God has been replaced by money. Indulgence, pride, and envy, again, all bad motives. But look at the second warning, and that is to make sure that you are investing in the eternal. I mean, if you're saving up piles here on earth, make sure you are investing in the eternal too. Because this man was making a lot, but he was directing nothing toward God. He had the biggest house and the biggest barns in the neighborhood. He knew savings and he knew them very well. But with all of these savings, with all of these assets, with this well-rounded portfolio, he had missed out on one variable that is inevitable in everyone. That is that he wasn't prepared for death. Because we all die. And the last time that I checked, the mortality rate still revolved around about 100% in the world today. We all die. And I think God shakes his head at everyone or anyone who is so prepared for everything in this life, but yet is, 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 is overlooking one guarantee, and that's death. Everyone dies. And again, Jesus is not saying that large saving or a large amount, large amount of savings here on earth is wrong. His argument is that is if this is your sole purpose, it's not a good investment. If you're thinking of term in terms of future value, think of sending some of what you're making towards God and His church and the work that He is doing in this world today. I close with this Matthew chapter six. Verses 19 and 21. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the question that I want to close with this morning is, where's your heart right now? Is your heart in the material? Is your trust and your faith in finances? Or is your faith and trust in God? What He can do in your life, what He wants to see in you, what He wants to grow in you, and how He wants to see us become more and more like Him in the way we spend, in the way that we save, in the way that we give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just pray, Lord, that as we continue to come at this subject of money, that you will continue to do your work in us, Father, uh, that you will show us your plans and your desires for our life. Uh, God, you know our stories better than anyone. You know them better than we do. And I just pray, Father, that even here this morning, God, that you would just enter into our life in a powerful way, uh, that you would point out things in our life that you would like to do work in, that you would like to change in us. Uh, but even, uh, even just as importantly, God, I pray that this morning uh, that you would just encourage us, uh, that you would just move us in such a way that we can trust you and believe that you're capable of doing greater things in us. Uh, would you teach us to trust you? Would you teach us to know you? Would you teach us to live as you would live? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.